Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We continue reading in the book of Genesis at chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. 
At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The the man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. So the text starts with Jacob hearing, this word got around, that there was food in Egypt. The famine is raging, a seven-year famine that will will strike the earth. But Joseph has stockpiled seven years' worth of plenty the grain that was beyond numbering in the land of Egypt, and he's been selling it. So word gets to Jacob, he sends his sons to go and retrieve some. The why do you look at one another line is humorous in the idea that it's a a father wondering why his sons are just kind of glumly staring at one another like, what can we do? And he's giving them a task. He's giving them work to handle. Now, he doesn't send Benjamin. And that's one where you might be able to ask the kids, why does he fear only for Benjamin and not for the other ten sons? This is going to get back into Dad's favoritism. This is cemented at the end of the chapter, if you had any doubt. Um, It's crystal clear there. He doesn't care what happens to the ten. Benjamin is his favorite now, since he believes Joseph to be dead. Benjamin being the other son born to him by his favorite wife, Rachel. Jacob still does not see the evil that his favoritism brings in his own household, and he continues it, and it only only continues here as well. He's only afraid that Benjamin would be harmed, not all of them. So they travel. They make the journey down to Egypt with the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So you can almost picture a giant caravan, like a highway, just filled with constant travel, people going to Egypt for food and returning. Now, this journey from perhaps Beersheba uh, would be roughly 170 miles. Donkeys aren't as great for travel as a camel in that region of the world, but they are still pretty solid for it. They can go about three or four miles an hour, And in good condition, a donkey can travel for three days without rest. So, 
putting all that together, a donkey could make this trip in about 40 hours or two or three days worth of travel time, which is going to make sense in verse 27 that they were giving the donkeys fodder at the lodging place. They just find a place to stay overnight as they journey onward. Now, as they come before their brother Joseph in the land of Egypt, he treats them harshly. Roughly is the word used here in the text. Most commentators are going to see this actually as a good thing, that Joseph and, by God's blessing, is doing this to bring his brothers to repentance. Maybe. It comes off to me much more like Joseph is acting quite a bit like a jerk. He's lying and he's deceiving. I don't want to say that that's God's hand. I don't want to say God is doing that, although God works through it. God is going to bring about repentance through this in the brothers. We're going to see that. And finally, in chapter 44, verse 16, we'll see the brothers repent. The commentaries will also talk about this as a testing to see if the brothers have actually changed. And that testing is going to continue to see how they will treat Benjamin in the chapters to come as well. But for now, Joseph harsh to them, accuses them of being spies who have come to see the nakedness of the land. That is, like nakedness exposes our flesh. So the idea that the land would be exposed, that they would see the weak points if they wanted to attack with an army. They don't recognize Joseph, but he knows them. They are, I mean, they've aged. 20 years at least have gone by at this point because there's the 13 years from when he's 17 to 30 that he spends as a slave in Egypt. Then there's seven more years of the seven years of plenty. We don't know just how far into the famine we are. Is this still year one of the famine? Or if we made it into year two, for example, those are the likely ones. So Joseph is 37, 38 years old, something like that. 20, 21 years have passed. He can still recognize his, his tag team of brothers, even though they're now much older, they've doubled in age roughly. But they don't recognize him because of several barriers. He's now dressed differently. He's not dressed like a Hebrew. He's dressed like an Egyptian. And he's speaking Egyptian. We learn in the text that there's an interpreter between them in verse 23. So part of his ruse, his disguise here, is to not use the language that he knows. He could have spoken to them in, in Hebrew, and he doesn't, at least not yet. As part of trying to convince Joseph that they aren't spies, they give a little bit of their backstory, that they are sons of one man. They're all brothers. They also claim to be honest. That would be a change, in character from what Joseph knows of them from his time time growing up. Uh, it wasn't honest of them to do what they did in chapter 37, where they lied to their father about what happened to Joseph, that they sold him into slavery, but they passed it off to dad as a, a beast killing Joseph on the journey. Joseph continues to push them, and at that point they confess that there are actually 12 of them one is at home, the youngest, and the other one is no more. Is that a reference to death? It's more of a reference to simply the idea that he's no longer part of their family. Is he still alive? Maybe. They have no idea. They can't say. Um, so they just simply state he's not there. 
essentially. Joseph continues to push, but then offers a test, and he swears an oath by Pharaoh here that they must bring their youngest brother and that he will imprison, he actually says, all but one of them until they bring the brother back. He's going to revert on that, and he's going to flip it around and only imprison one of them until they bring their brother back. But that doesn't happen until the next paragraph. So at first, he puts all of them into custody for three days. If we have any hint here in all of these accounts about how long Joseph is in Potiphar's house versus how long he's in in the prison, it's this little phrase. It could be a symbolic custody that they have three days in prison for the three years that he himself spent in prison. Could be. I'm not saying that with any guarantee or certainty, but it would parallel with the symbolic use of the number 40. That is, the Israelites are 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus will be 40 days in the wilderness. So there could be a connection in that kind of a manner. It also does bring up a foreshadowing, though, This is used in the Lutheran service book, hymn number 482, this joyful Easter tide. The refrain, Had Christ who once was slain not burst his three-day prison, our faith had been in vain. But now has Christ arisen, arisen, arisen. But now has Christ arisen. Christ was slain, but he burst his three-day prison. There's a connection, at the very least, to them being imprisoned for three days. Again, foreshadowing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the future. Now, after those three days, Joseph claims he fears God. The brothers, that wouldn't mean too much to them because they would assume he's fearful of an Egyptian God. But he gives them the opportunity. Leave one brother here. Carry the grain home, recognizing that their families need food in the famine. And when you return, bring your youngest brother. This is how he'll know they're speaking the truth. So he says, I mean, it's part of the deception. What what proof would that actually be? All they'd have to do is go out and hire somebody to pretend to be their younger brother. So, again, part of the deception here. As this is brought to them, they start to confess. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. This is why this distress has come upon us. That's again chapter 37, what they did, selling him into slavery. They speak of these things as being the consequences of their actions that they did against Joseph all those years ago, that they are being repaid evil for evil. Joseph came to them for aid. They sought his harm. Now they are looking for aid. They've been met with harm. That's the way they're seeing it. Uh, It's a bit karma-like, and by that I simply mean the American idea of karma, that what goes around comes around. If you do evil, evil hits you. If you do good, good comes back to you. It's not necessarily the way things work. It's not really our Christian understanding of things either. Sin does have consequence, though. That is for sure. And their sin 
That's been wrecking havoc on their family ever since, as their dad has mourned as he's grieved, as they have borne that guilt in their own hearts. Have they confessed before? Have they told their father? And we don't have the answers to those questions. So, Reuben does the old brotherly thing, I told you so, and also acknowledges that this is about Joseph, a reckoning for his blood that they are being repaid for the evil that they had done. Now, Joseph had an interpreter. They didn't know he could speak Hebrew. They don't know it's Joseph. He could understand them. It brings him to tears, and so he hides his tears and then returns to them so that he can finish out giving the order. He has their bags filled up with food, sends them home, has the servants put the money back in the sacks, returning their money to them and giving them extra food for the journey home in the couple of days, two or three days that it would take. This does bring up another unanswerable question, but could be a nice family conversation. What do you imagine that the Egyptian servants of Joseph think? Here they are. Everybody, even their own families, are having to pay money to get food. Joseph is giving this food away freely. Joseph isn't pressing other people as being spies, but he's pressing this group as being spies. They would recognize that he's acting weird in this. But we don't, we don't really know. We're not told. It's just kind of fun to think about what might have been going on in the servants' minds as this happens. The one brother who remains behind is going to be Simeon. As Joseph binds him and keeps him in custody, the rest of the brothers go home. And as they reach the lodging place, they find money. One of the brothers, unknown, not mentioned by Moses who it was, one of the brothers finds his money in the bag. Their hearts fail them. can get that kind of a picture. The grief, despair, depression that might have beset them at the moment. The Lord of the land already thought we were spies. Now he's going to think we're also thieves. And... Simeon's in his custody. What will happen to him? What will he do? They might as well imagine that the lord of the land would put their brother to death, thinking them to be truly spies who have wronged Egypt. So they go home. They report to Jacob everything that's happened, and we're going to skip down to the last paragraph here. As they all empty out their sacks, they see the money, Jacob sees the money, and they're fearful. And Jacob speaks and says, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Multiple things here. First, he blames the brothers for bereaving him of his children, including Joseph. Now, does this mean he knows what they did to Joseph? Or is he simply saying this because he blames them because he sent Joseph to them and Joseph didn't make it home? Don't know. We don't have any answer to that. The second part, though, all this has come against me. Jacob is not seeing the blessings that he has. He has ten sons, yet. He still has all of his sons. He doesn't know it. He also still has likely three of his wives. He has many grandchildren, as we'll see in chapter 46. He's not counting his blessings, but instead he's despising them. He's only looking at the, the, 
things that are going wrong in his life, and he's not thanking God for what he has, which we saw Joseph do in contrast in yesterday's chapter. He praised God for giving him children in the land of his affliction. So Reuben makes a very strange oath that if he doesn't bring Benjamin home, dad can kill his sons. So Jacob can kill his grandsons, Reuben's boys. If you're putting any kind of best construction to this, it is a statement of Reuben's confidence that he will certainly be able to do this. Otherwise, it's a wicked and wretched oath. Honestly, it still is anyway. This is not the way to do it. But Jacob refuses that. My son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead. He is the only one left. Favoritism. He favors the sons of his favorite wife, Rachel. That would be Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph's gone, so he thinks he's only got the one favorite son left. If harm should happen to him, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Sheol, a reference to death or the grave or being buried underground. We're going to see more of that kind of language from Jacob to come. But he favors Benjamin and not the rest of his sons. Parents out there, not a good idea. Love the children that the Lord has entrusted to you. Love them all. Share Christ with them all. Care for them all. Let us praise the Lord incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died and rose victorious, that we may know God by grace. Let us sing for joy and